It's good to see you. Thanks for being here today. If you're watching online, thanks for joining us here as well. Uh, We've been working our way through a series this summer called Unstuck. And the idea behind this series is this, that we all face challenges in life. And when we hit those challenges, we can find ourselves feeling very stuck and uncertain of how to move forward. And that can come in lots of ways. We can feel stuck sometimes and we're very aware of it. Sometimes we can find ourselves in a place where we're stuck and we're unaware of it. Sometimes we're stuck and we need other people to, or other sources to help us see how stuck we really are. But the good news is, and what we've been doing in this series, we've been looking at passages where Jesus encounters people who are stuck, who are facing challenges, and they can't move forward on their own. And so what we see is how Jesus comes alongside and helps them move forward, helps them be unstuck, which is an encouraging thing for us. And so over the course of this summer, we've looked at a number of different things, challenges that we face that cause us to be stuck. We've looked at the challenge of temptation. We've looked at the challenge of disease. We've looked at the challenge of inadequacy. We've looked at the challenge of shame. And today we're going to look at the challenge of guilt, the challenge of guilt. And the truth is, guilt is one of those things that can cause us all to feel stuck. And whether it's guilt you're carrying from your past or guilt that you currently feel and you so desperately want to hide and cover up and don't want anyone else to know, um, guilt is one of those things. It's not a, a possibility in your life. It's a present reality for each and every one of us. There's certain aspects of our life, all of us, we recognize, yeah, I'm guilty. I did wrong, I've done wrong, I feel that burden and it can cause us to be in a spot where we're stuck. That is, unless what we try to do is ignore it, we try to cover it up, we try to push it away, we try to deny it, there's lots of things that we do to say, yeah, 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 that's not me. You know the story, perhaps you heard the story about the two brothers, the story about the two brothers who were both very wealthy, but also both very corrupt. They were corrupt in both their business practices, but also in their personal character. They were greedy. They were self-centered. They, they were immoral. But they went to church. Um, but at the church that they went to, the pastor who was there just saw through them. He just saw that, hey, there's, there's, you know, there's, a, there's the outward presentation, but then there's the reality that these guys are corrupt and shady in lots of different ways. And so he didn't buy all that. Now, one of the brothers, though, passes away. And um, the remaining brother comes to the pastor the day before the funeral. And he hands the pastor a check. And it just happens to be for the amount necessary for the church to pay off the new building project that they're working on. It was a significant donation. And as he passes this to the pastor, he says, there's one condition with this. At my brother's funeral tomorrow, I need you to say that he was a saint. pastor thinks about this for a moment says agreed he takes the check and he quickly goes and deposits it now the very next day at the funeral the pastor gets up and he begins to speak and he does not hold back he starts to tell about how corrupt this brother was that passed away he starts talking about how uh, unscrupulous he was that he was you know abusive and deceptive and just really evil and he went on with this for quite a while and then he concluded with this he said but compared to his brother he was a saint (laughs) there you go 
The point of it is this, that we can try to cover things up. We can even try to compare ourselves to other people. But the reality is we all still face this challenge of guilt in our life. And it can cause us to feel stuck. And so what I want to do today is take a look at a passage where Jesus uh, deals with someone who's in, is stuck in guilt. And I want you to see how that unfolds and the hope and the help that that can bring to our lives as well. It's a passage that's, that's famous in many ways because it, it's about a woman who is remarkably well-known. And it's remarkable that she is well-known because we know very little about her. In fact, we don't know her name And we know very little about her, but my guess is most of you here have heard her story or part of her story. And so you'd say, okay, yeah, this is familiar to me. And it's a powerful story at that. And the passage we're going to look at, it's found in John chapter 7. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. John chapter 7, in the very last verse of John chapter 7, and then picks up in chapter 8, going into verse 11 of chapter 8. It's a story of a woman who's caught in adultery. Now, the interesting thing about this story, before I, want you to, before I read it, because I want you to feel the power of this story, um, is if you look in your Bible, it's very likely if you have a study Bible or something, that there's a notation there that says, you know, this, this passage or this portion of Scripture, you know, you know, is not found in the earlier manuscripts here. And I wanted to just talk about that for a moment, because if you look at that notation, you might think to yourself, well, is this semi-Bible? What is this? Where does this, what is this, what's going on here? And so let me just take a moment to explain that before we look at it together. Um, it, the question is, is this Bible? And the answer to that is, yes, it's Bible. It's true, legitimate Bible. The question is not, okay, you know, is it, is it Bible? The question is, where does it fit in the Bible? That's the bigger question. Because this is one of those passages that was so, this story was so well loved by the early church that so often the people would kind of, kind of tear it out, so to speak, kind of take that one page of this story and they would want to pass it around to other people. And so what we have is a, a whole lot of manuscripts of this story, but it's just on its own. There's many of them that have been this, uh, it's kind of fits on one page. So it's sort of like the good news in a postcard form. And so it was one of those things you could pass around. And so the challenge became, where does this fit in the Bible? Because we found it in John, more, most historically right here at the end of chapter 7. We've also found it in other places in John. We found it, you know, kind of taped to the back of Mark, Luke. It's kind of one of those things like, it's so good, we don't want you to miss it. So let's just put it in there so you can have it as well. That's kind of the, the force of it. So it's, it's true Bible. Um, and it really has the voice of John, the language of John, the vocabulary of John. So it fits best really right here with John. And it's powerful, powerful story. And what I want to do is I want to read it for you so you can hear the whole story. Then we'll come back and we'll look at it verse by verse. And so what I want to do is invite you to please stand and we'll read this passage together um, beginning in John chapter 7 verse 53 then going through 8 chapter 8 all the way to verse 11. It says this, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, 
bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. This passage takes place uh, during a time of escalating tension between Jesus and the teachers of the law. It just keeps getting worse and worse. They keep trying to trap, trap him, but surprise, surprise, it doesn't work, and they get more and more frustrated. And so that's where this picks up um, in chapter 7, verse 53. It says this, Then they all went home. That is, all the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And we know from the earlier in, in this chapter that they were trying to trap him. They were trying to find ways to condemn him and to, to put Jesus away. It doesn't work. They're getting frustrated, not just with Jesus, but we also see them fighting with each other. They're getting frustrated with one another. So it says that they go home, the teachers of the law of the Pharisees go home frustrated, and they go to, to, to their own homes. And then but Jesus doesn't go to home. His home, he goes to the Mount of Olives. That's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So this is where Jesus goes to spend the night. So they kind of part ways. They go different ways. The guys who are frustrated at Jesus and want to put him away, they're thinking of, man, why can't we trap him? Why can't we stop him? And they're thinking and scheming. And Jesus, on the other hand, goes to the Mount of Olives. He gets up, and then the next morning, he's ready to go back to work to care for people. And that's what we see in the next verse. It says this in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So again, Jesus, different from the other guys who are scheming to try to trap him, Jesus gets up and says, how can I serve the people who are here in Jerusalem? And so he shows up at the temple courts, and we know that this is the court of the women, which is the court that was uh, most accessible to people. So he, anyone, any person could come and interact with Jesus, listen to him, and hear his teaching. And so he is there to teach, to love, to serve, and to care for people. And it says here that as he's teaching, he sat down to teach them which is um, the rabbinical form of teaching. So when the rabbi teaches, they sit down. When the pastor teaches, they stand up. I know, I don't get it. Seems a little unfair to me, but um, that's just how it goes, okay? So the rabbi teaching, sit down. They're like, okay, silent. Let's listen to what the rabbi has to say. And so that's the scene he's teaching, and then it's uh, really rudely interrupted. We see this in verse 3. It says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now, you just have to really get yourself picturing the scene, because Jesus really did sit to teach. They're quiet. They're listening, much like this room. They're saying, what's the rabbi going to teach? What's Jesus going to say? They're interacting on that. And all of a sudden, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees barge in with the woman who's caught in adultery. Let me ask you this question. Do you think she's going quietly? Nope. 
So just imagine the commotion, the the disruption of this meeting when they're dragging in this woman who's kicking, screaming, cursing. She doesn't want to be there. There's a big scene. They take her and they put her right there in front of the whole group. And so that's that's what's going on. And it's quite the interruption. And interestingly, we don't know this woman's name. And so they're not concerned about her. You already kind of get the sense that she, they're not concerned about her as a person. They see her as a thing. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. That's, the, that's sort of the picture that's taking place. And it says they made her stand before the group, which was abso- certainly absolutely humiliating, right? Not a single one of us wants to be caught in our sin, do we? I mean, none of us, we want to cover up and hide. We don't want to be caught in sin. But then take it another level and have it be publicly presented before everyone out, just out there. I mean, talk about humiliation on humiliation. That's what's taking place for uh, this woman in this scene. Then verse four, and they, that is the Pharisees, said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So they say to him, listen, We've caught this woman, and she's been caught in the act of adultery. And this is, uh, of course, a very serious charge. Um, In the ancient Israel, there were three crimes that were punishable by death. Idolatry, um, murder, and um, adultery. So this is and was a very serious crime. And, And let's just be honest, it still is a very serious deal today. And so it was very serious then, and they're saying this woman was caught um, in the act, and the evidence is powerful. They're saying she was caught in the act. That is, there are witnesses. And so we have people, they've, seen, they've caught her, they can testify against her. We don't need to go to a court because, I mean, the verdict is in, she's guilty. That's what they're bringing to Jesus. And so this is where they're coming. They're thinking, okay, finally, we got it. we're in a spot where we um, can trap, uh, trap Jesus. Now, if you read this passage, though, it, it's, it's not, you read it, you, you pause at this moment, and any of us who are kind of like tracking and reasonably going through, we stop at this moment, and we think to ourselves, well, wait a minute. Traditionally, in adultery, aren't there two people involved? And so you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, there's someone missing here in this scene. I mean, they've gone through a lot of trouble to drag this woman, but where's the man? Right? And so you're thinking to yourself, there's something off about this. It feels like a setup. And if you're feeling that and you're thinking that, guess what? You're right. It's a setup. And, it, and they're using her as a tool, as a weapon to get at Jesus. And that's what we see um, that's going on. And really, it's, it's sad and it's sick that that's the case that's going on. Because, listen, when people become tools, when they become things, we become dangerous. And, and that's, that's, that's a, a really a, a, a warning that we need to hear. Then verse 5, it says this. In the, law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, listen, here's, here's the law. Um, what are you going to say about it? And the question is, do they have the law right? Yes. If you're a note taker, Deuteronomy 22, 22, it talks about those who are caught in adultery are to be put to death. That is, by the way, both the, the man and the woman, but they skip that part. Um, so they're, but they're, they're saying, hey, listen, we've caught her. Um, it's, it's, 
it's this, you know, part of this crime, it needs to be punishable by death according to the law of Moses. But we see that they're not as much concerned about the law as something else. And we see their motive come out in the following verse. Look at it with me in verse 6. It says this, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. So they're using this, um, this question as a trap. What's the trap? Well, if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone her. Then there, you know, it doesn't help with this whole idea that Jesus is a friend of sinners, right? <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and, and just let's start, let's start doing it. And then the other side of things, with, along with that, it would put Jesus in a position where he'd be in trouble with Rome because uh, Jews, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation and the Rome, Romans uh, did not allow the Jews to act on um, capital punishment. And so if he had said, yeah, let's, let's stone her, then he would have stirred up trouble for the Jewish people because he would have stirred up trouble with Rome and he would have been facing a Roman court. Now, on the other side, if he says, okay, then um, let's not stone her, then they're coming to him and saying, well, are you against the law of Moses? I mean, what Messiah isn't going to follow the law of Moses? And so they'd be saying, well, then you're not following the, our law and you're not honoring God and his, his word. And so they, he'd be going in front of a Jewish court. Does that make sense? So either way, he, he's trapped. Uh, that is, that's what the Pharisees are thinking. And they're just thinking, they're looking, they're looking at this, they're going, yes, we finally have Jesus and um, we've, we've got him trapped. He's, there's no way for him to get out of this one. Now, before we talk about what happens next, let me just take a little detour for a moment and talk about um, a Bible study to method, something for us to just think about when we study the Bible, especially when we study the Bible, when we come to passages about the Pharisees, there's a critical warning that we need to hear and we need to remember. Anytime you run into a passage of the Pharisees, you need to hear this critical warning. And here's what the critical warning is. That each time you read about the Pharisees, that you, um, instead of saying, oh man, look at those guys and they're, they're just such idiots. Instead of saying, man, you just look at them that way, that we not stop at the same time and say, yeah, but could I also make the same error? See, it's one thing to be able to look at the Pharisees and so those guys are the bad guys, but I'm on this, on this side of the table and there's no way that I would act that way. And I think it's just a critical warning for us when we face these moments where we run up against these challenges with the Pharisees that we don't just say, yeah, they're a bunch of idiots and not still ask the question, what about me? Where am I? It's easy to say, man, those guys don't get it. They blow it and not ask the question, what about me? Is, am I not getting it? Is there something that I'm missing? Because the word Pharisee, by the way, it means in, um, in Hebrew to be serious. So they were very serious spiritually. And if you met a Pharisee, my guess is you would walk away saying, wow, they're super godly and they're super moral. I've never met any, anybody that's quite like them. That's what you would be walking away feeling and thinking. These guys had a great concern for God. They had a great concern for their country. They had a great concern for right and wrong. Um, but the problem is they just didn't get what God was doing through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they got sideways. And so it's just important for us to just recognize, hey, is there stuff that they are doing that I could find myself doing as well? What is it that they're doing? Well, you could go to them and say, hey, are you right 
And they would say, yes, we're absolutely convinced that we are right, that we are doing the right thing. But you and I look at the Pharisees and say, yeah, but it kind of feels wrong at the same time. Does that make sense? And so here's the principle that I want you to see that I think is important from this passage here, that it's possible to be very right and still be very wrong-hearted. Do you get that? It's possible to be very right in your relationships, but be very wrong-hearted. That is, there's very possible that you find yourself getting sideways with someone, finding yourself in opposition with someone, and you can clearly see you're right and they're wrong. And then what you do with that is you look at them and you villainize them. Well, they're the bad guy. And you can look at them and you say, ah, I see them as wrong. And then that eventually turns to they're evil. And then they're not just an evil person, they're an evil thing. Do you, you see how that can go? How you can go down that road? And then if you got yourself in a spot where you're saying, yes, I'm right, they're wrong, they're a villain, they're an evil person, they're an evil thing, then we can find ourselves justifying lots of ways that we can respond to them with our attitudes, with our actions, and, and be justified doing so because we're right and they're wrong. We can be very right and be very wrong-hearted at the same time. And I think that's a caution that we just need to stop and recognize when we run into encounters with the Pharisees to say, yeah, they're just awful, and not stop to say, is it possible that I could be that awful too? And then really do a heart check. So that's just an important thing to see. Now, what I want you to see in the next, the next part of this verse, and I've highlighted for you, it says this, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. So Jesus, um, this is his response. He gets down and he starts writing on the ground. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay, what's going on? Well, there's lots of theories about what Jesus is doing and what he's writing on the ground. There are some people who believe, well, he's just stalling for time, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because if you recognize and if you followed much of Jesus' life and teaching, he's very intentional. He's very quick. He's not like, like, oh, I'm stumbling, not quite sure how to respond. Jesus is not stalling for time. Some people say, well, he's doodling. He just got down and he started doodling on the ground. And, and um, again, I'm thinking to myself, really doodling? I'm not quite sure that's what he's doing. He decided to draw some pictures and do some, you know, drawings and just scribble some stuff in the ground. And uh, it doesn't make as much sense to me either. Which also, by the way, there is in the Greek language a word for doodle, just like there is in our language a word for doodling. And that word is not here. The word here in this verse is um, built off the word uh, to write, which is grapho. And so the, the word is to write. So it's, a, it's clear writing, not doodling. Um, so then some people say, well, if he's writing, maybe uh, he's writing scripture. And that would make sense. So a lot of people would say, well, he's writing the Ten Commandments down. And he's taking some time and he's writing the Ten Commandments. And then that's, and that, that, that's good. Some people go back to Daniel. You remember the scene in Daniel chapter 5 where the hand of God comes out and starts writing on the wall in, at, uh, when Daniel was with Belshazzar to that feast and he starts writing in, in Aramaic. This hand starts writing and it says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin, and which means you've been weighed and found wanting is what it, what it means. What basically says you've been on the scale and you're a little light, bud. That's kind of the idea. And so you know, people say, oh, maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. And there's lots of different theories, but I, I, I tend to think that it's, it's right here in the verse that helps us understand what's going on. 
Um, because here in this verse, it does say that um, G- Jesus stoops down to write. And the word there, I already told you, is the word grapho. So he's writing. But with the word grapho, there's a prepositional phrase in Greek that's connected to it, that's right there in front of it. And the, the prepositional phrase in Greek is, is kata, which means against. So when you put that together, it says he's writing against someone. And that's important for us to get, that he's writing against them. And you say, well, are there other places where this word has been used? And yes, fortunately, when we look at the, you know, the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, we find this exact word used in a number of places, but most, most prominently, it's, it's found in Job chapter 13, where Job is lamenting to God, um, and he says to God, you're making a list of all the charges and sins against me. You're making a list of my sins, the charges uh, against me. And so you get that this, this sense that you're to write against is to make a list of charges. And so what I see, what I think is happening here, is that Jesus, when it says katagraphane in this passage, to write against, he's writing against them. He's making a list of charges against the people who are all there ready to stone this woman. So when he stoops down, he gets down on the ground and he starts to write and he's looking at the guys who are standing there with their stones and he's like, okay, hmm, Jacob, hmm, major lust problem. And he starts writing that down. He's like, all right, okay, how about you? Okay, hmm, Jesse, uh, you cheated on your taxes this year. And so he's writing that down. He's making this list of charges. And then he looks over and he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Joseph, yes, um, you don't pray with your eyes closed. Okay, so he's putting that down. No, I have, I have no idea what he's writing. But, but, you know, the concept is there because Jesus is omniscient. So do you think he kind of knows what's going on and even know what's going on in the heart? And so when it says he's writing against them, he's writing a list of charges. And he's stooped over. They don't know what's going on. He's writing. And it says they kept badgering him about the woman. They're missing the fact that he's actually going to give them a list of things in their, in their life that they need to be aware of. And of course, they don't get that until the next verse. And this is what it says here. Then they kept on questioning him. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So when he straightens up, all of a sudden, everyone's looking over to see what he's written. And it's like, yeah, again, Jesus is omniscient. He knows sins. He knows dates and he knows names. And they're going, oh, man. <laughs> they, start to back off. they start to back off a little bit. And this is where he makes this famous statement. Perhaps you've heard before. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So he's like, hey, check the list over here, guys. Which one of you is ready to throw the stone? And it's powerful. And it's, it's powerful because you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say that she's this woman who's caught in adultery. He doesn't say, you're not guilty. She's guilty. But what he also says is to the guys, you're guilty too. Do you get what he's doing? He's saying, we're all there. You're all guilty. You're all in this spot. And this is an important thing for us to get because sometimes what we end up doing is we, we have our guilt areas or sin areas, but we, we look at other people, we, send it, we tend to want to separate ourselves from them and say, ah, oh, they're the guilty ones, and, you know, I've got, you know, I've got struggles in my life. They've got sin in their life, right? We have a pretty good way of wording it a little bit differently. I just have some challenges, but they're just evil. 
right? You get that? And so we kind of tend to want to separate ourselves from people. Jesus is just saying, guess what? You're all guilty. Which one of you wants to throw the first stone? That's what he's doing to them. <laughs> and, and so he makes this statement then. In the next verse, it says this. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. This is the moment where if you're wise, you're saying the guys who are walking around and they saw the list, they're going, okay, I, I think I have an appointment that I need to be at right now, okay? There's another place that I need to be. I'm going to go before Jesus starts writing some more things down that I don't want him to write. So then verse 9 um, at, this, at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So as Jesus does this and he starts writing again, it says that they all started to leave. And it says the older ones go first. And maybe that's because they have a little bit longer list of sins to kind of history that's going on. Maybe they also recognize, hey, justification and rationalization. I've been trying to do that for a long time. It just doesn't work anymore. So they start to walk away. And in this moment of silence, you begin to hear this noise, a thud, 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 as rocks begin to drop and guys begin to walk away until there's no one left except Jesus and the woman who's still there. Now, in this moment, when it's just Jesus and this woman, we know the end of the story. We know how, where this is going. She doesn't. At this moment, it's just her. He, 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 here she is with the Son of God, the sinless man, and she's a sinful woman. Here she is with, the, the, with Jesus, the judge of the world, and she's a woman who legitimately could be judged. And so the, you, you feel the tension with that? What, what, where she's going, where is this going to go? What's going to happen next? Then Jesus cuts through the tension with a question. Look at it with me. It says this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He cuts through the tension. He asks the question, where are they? Now notice what Jesus doesn't ask. Jesus doesn't say, are you guilty? It's assumed. He knows she's been caught. She knows she's been caught. He doesn't ask the question, are you guilty? He just asks the question, where is everyone? Has no one condemned you? Then her response in verse 11, she says this, no one, sir, she said, Neither, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What a powerful, incredibly powerful statement. And I want to take a look at these two pieces of Jesus' response here. But what's important for us to see is the sequence of these statements as well. That Jesus begins by saying, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. So you're not condemned, now go changed. You're forgiven, now live differently. There is important, important, important for us to get that sequence there. He begins by saying, then neither do I condemn you. And this is so powerful. This is so powerful for us to get because um, my guess is when it was just her and Jesus, she's just waiting for the hammer to drop. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna be condemned. Jesus doesn't condemn her. Now listen, this is good news for you and I as well. That when we come before Jesus, guess what? We stand before him, we stand guilty. We stand guilty. 
And it's very possible to say, well, there needs to be a punishment for my guilt, for my sins, the burden that I wear. But here's, Carrie, the good news is, through Jesus Christ, that we're not punished. He took the punishment for us on the cross. Isn't that good news? That Jesus loved us so much, he says, yep, you're guilty. Let me take upon myself your guilt, the punishment for your sins. When he went to the cross, that's what he did. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf, that he took your place, paid your penalty of your sins, that's where you find freedom and release from your sin. You find forgiveness, and that is good news. And it's incredible news for us. It's incredible news for this woman. But you know what? A lot of people come to this passage, and it upsets them. It frustrates them. There's some people who don't even think this passage should be in the Bible because they're saying, uh, you know, Jesus, wait a minute, you shouldn't be letting people off the hook. I mean, if they're guilty, if they've sinned, then they need to be condemned. And you feel that, right? Perhaps you've felt that at some point, haven't you? Where you say, okay, I've looked at people and, you know, they need to be condemned. They're, they're guilty. They, they need to get what's coming. And we think to ourselves, yeah, forgiveness is good, and I want forgiveness for some people, like me, but for those people, they don't, they shouldn't, they don't deserve forgiveness. And we can begin to separate. We can say to ourselves, you know what? I need forgiveness, but my backstabbing friend, no way. I need forgiveness, but my, my brother-in-law, uh-uh. I need forgiveness, but my ex-lying, cheating spouse, no way. Right? We can find ourselves in that position. And if you find yourself in a position where you're saying, yep, I need forgiveness, but not them, then let me just suggest something to you. Put your rock down. Put your rock down. Listen, it's not that you may be right. You may be very right. In fact, they may be standing guilty and condemned and have done wrong. But listen, Jesus says, don't judge, lest you be judged. The same way you judge others, others, you will be judged. And so you may be right. You may, their person may have wronged you, but you need to stop and say, I need to trust that to Jesus. He can handle it. He's the one who's the righteous judge. So I left that in his hands, and I, I'm grateful for his grace that he's given to me. That's, that's, the, that's where we need to come to. Now, there's the, the condemnation side. says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. So he says, guess what? You've been no longer condemned. You're forgiven. Now go change. And this is a powerful statement for us to get as well. And it's important that we not reverse these. Because sometimes we think spiritual progress is going to happen in my life if I change myself. If I can clean myself up, if I can stop sinning, if I can be worthy of God, then he won't condemn me. But that's the opposite of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is this, that we come to him guilty and condemned. He forgives us, and then he empowers us to live differently, to live a changed life. We cannot reverse those. You will stay stuck spiritually and be exhausted for a long, long time until you just come say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. In fact, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to come to Jesus and say, I recognize I've been trying to change myself, fix myself, clean myself up. I can't, and I'm abandoning confidence in myself, and I'm putting full confidence in you. That's what Jesus invites us to do, to trust him, 
to put our faith in him, receive his forgiveness, no condemnation, and then allow him to work in your life powerfully to change you and to live differently. That's what you need to hear. Now, some of you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you need to be reminded of the fact that there is no condemnation for you. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven. Can I remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Listen to what it says. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For some of you who have placed your faith in Christ, you need to hear this again. There's no condemnation. Your guilt has been forgiven. Jesus paid the punishment for your sins. You trust him, he's, he's taken it from you. Any, any other message where you need to keep carrying the guilt, you need to keep being weighed down by the burdens of your past and your present sins, then you're missing it. Jesus says, there's no condemnation for those who are in me. Isn't that good news? And how ridiculous would it be if you found yourself in a courtroom and you're standing before a judge and the judge says to you, here's the verdict, not guilty. The, the, the punishment has been paid. The debt that you owed has been forgiven. You are not guilty. You're set free. How ridiculous would it be to then walk up to the judge in that courtroom and say, judge, wait, 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 wait. Nope, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. You can't set me free. In fact, put more chains on me. I need to be burdened down because I'm so guilty. What would the judge say? The judge would say, listen, I'm the judge. This is my courtroom, and I've declared you not guilty. It would be ridiculous again to say, judge, but I'm guilty, right? Because the judge has made the judgment. The payment has been the punishment has been paid. You've been set free. So you're forfeiting if you're stuck with guilt that you wanted to carry that's no longer yours to carry. You're stuck with that burden and you're missing out on the freedom and the joy that you've been set free. You've gone from death to life. Jesus has set you free. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now live differently by my spirit, by my power. This is what he offers to us. So go out in freedom. Go out in rejoicing. And it's important, it's important, important for us to get some of you here today. Today, you need to leave your condemnation here today. Some of you need to leave your shame here today. Some of you need to leave your past here today. You've been carrying it for far too long. It's time to leave it here some of you need to leave the burden that you've been carrying here today because in Christ Jesus, there's therefore no condemnation. You've been brought from death to life. Rejoice in that. Live in that freedom and allow the Spirit of God to work through you, to transform you, and to, to live differently because of what He has done in faith. Isn't that good news? This is what he offers to us. He offers to you and he offers to me. Let's take a moment and let's thank him for his great work on the cross on our behalf. God, we do want to pause in your presence and we don't take lightly the fact that you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, all of our guilt, past, present, and future. You poured out on your son Jesus Christ who willingly went to the cross 
to take our place, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be set free, so that we could find forgiveness. We can be released from our guilt, from the past, from the burden of shame, and we can move forward with confidence and joy and freedom to live differently because of what you have done for us. God, help us to walk forward in faith, trusting in your work and your continual work in our lives. And God, we also ask that you would help us to be people who not only receive your mercy and grace, but show mercy and grace to others, that you would, by our life, allow us to be a light for you, to trust you, to uh, be uh, agents of your grace in our families, in our workplace, in our relationships, that we can point to a God who forgives and, and there's no one beyond your forgiveness. God, we're so grateful to you for that. Thank you for your love and thank you for your care. Thanks for your promises. Thanks for freeing us from guilt through your work of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.